Our text words this morning will be from Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And as we prepare for the preaching of the word, let's look to the Lord once again in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we praise and honor and glorify you as your people gathered at your command and at your invitation. We acknowledge to you our great dullness to receive your word and our, our great lack of faith to believe all that is written. We confess that we desperately need the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds. We need the quickening work of the Spirit to give spiritual life unto us to respond to your word in true faith and repentance. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, our ascended high priest who intercedes even now for us, who's offered up the once for all sacrifice for our sins, and who is our great prophet, who by his spirit teaches us, who by his word and spirit teaches us all the will of God for our salvation. And we pray for this now, for your glory and honor. And we cast ourselves upon you. And I confess also as the minister of Christ for this hour, my lack of ability and my sinful weakness to rightly comprehend and express the glorious truth of your word. But I pray for the gracious work of the very spirit of Christ and to the praise of his name and the glory and honor of you, our father. We pray now in Jesus name. Amen. As we consider our text words from the opening chapter of the book of Job, to get us thinking in the direction of human happiness, I wonder if you've seen the Amazon delivery trucks. I've seen them all over the place lately. They have that slogan across the side of the truck, warning, contents may cause happiness. And I want to ask you as Christians, is that statement true? Is there a possibility that the contents that that Amazon truck is delivering to your house, that those contents may cause happiness? Well, the surprise, the the answer may surprise you, as we'll see. But in this, we realize there are two kinds of happiness, which we'll be considering today. Two kinds of happiness that all of us as Christians experience here on earth Both of them are important, and a danger for us as Christians is to think that one kind of happiness is unimportant or else to elevate one over the other, whereas the other should be first place. Job here is a divinely ordained example that God has set before us in Scripture of a Christian who excelled in both kinds of happiness, as we'll see. And God holds forth Job as an example here in the book of Job. God devotes this this whole book of Scripture, possibly the most ancient book of Scripture as far as the time it was written. He dedicates it to show one of his faithful saints and how he, by the grace of God, looking unto Jesus Christ, persevered through great difficulty and kept the faith. God dedicates this entire book to this theme. Also in the prophet Ezekiel, God brings up Job again and mentions his righteousness. And then in the book of James, the apostle James holds before us Job as an example of patience. So our Lord himself, God himself holds forth Job in this way. And we remember that as we see the virtue that Job had as a believer, every virtue that Job 
displays is simply a faint reflection of his Lord Jesus Christ and our Lord Jesus Christ, who is working through him by his Spirit. Anything good in the life of Job came because of this, because he was united to God in Christ, and he was living by the very power of the Spirit of Christ. And in this, Job is an eminent type of Christ. We saw Joseph last week as a type of Christ. Here, Job is a beautiful type of Christ. In his sufferings and his faithfulness through those sufferings, and in being brought to the lowest low that we could imagine for a man on earth, and then exalted in the end and interceding for his friends, even those who had treated him ill. What a striking picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we should expect this in every page of the Old Testament because everything in these scriptures point us to Jesus Christ in some way. One reason I want to look at Job as an example of virtue is if we only looked at Christ as an example, we might be able to say, well, our Lord Jesus was sinless. And, and we can't live in perfect, sinless virtue as our Lord Jesus Christ did on earth. And we'd be exactly right. We can't. We're flawed by sin. We will have indwelling sin until we're gone to glory to be with the Lord. Until the Lord takes us by death or by the second coming of Christ, we will struggle with sin. But we have in Job and believers like him examples that are sinfully flawed and yet faithful by the grace of God. Hebrews 11 holds before us saint after saint in the Old Testament, and the Apostle encourages us there at the end that even as they looked unto Jesus and they they ran their race with patience, you as Christians run the race with patience looking unto Jesus Christ. Christ produced by His Spirit excellent virtue in Job. And dear Christian, this is your life in Christ. Job's God is your God. His Savior is your Savior. And God is doing the same work in you that He was doing in Job. And let this be an encouragement to you. So whatever is possible for Job or any other sinner saved by grace that you read of in Scripture is possible for you, dear believer. Even before final glory. Even while you still have indwelling sin By the grace of God, this is your life in Christ, and this is how God has called us to live, by His grace. We know that God has created us for His glory, for true happiness. We saw before in previous sermons how God created man upright, but man has sought out many schemes. God has created us and is recreating us as believers for true happiness. And this is our series theme, is human happiness. And we'll see here in this passage, and in the book of Job, how we have this true happiness, and how we are to strive to attain it by the grace of God as Christians. And with this in mind, our theme today is this, the saint's happiness on earth. The saint's happiness on earth on earth. There are two kinds of happiness, and Job, by the providence and grace of God, excelled in both of them. The first is natural happiness, and the second is supernatural happiness. Those are our two points today, natural and supernatural happiness.
Job enjoyed a high degree of natural happiness. We read of this in Job 1, verses 1 to 5. Now, when we think of happiness, we need to redefine it from the norms today, which are so off base. When we hear of happiness today, we think maybe of a a good feeling, a warm, fuzzy feeling. But we need to think of happiness as a synonym, another way of saying flourishing. Human happiness is human flourishing. And we've already seen that God created everything with natures and we are bounded by those natures. As humans, He made us with human nature and the more that we conform to that nature that God created us with for the purpose God created us, the happier we are. A happy plant is one that has plenty of water and sunlight and fertilizer. A happy dog is one that has plenty to eat, has plenty of exercise, and it's well-trained, it obeys its master. It's conforming to the idea of a good dog. That plant is conforming to the idea of a good plant. A happy human being, naturally speaking, is the one who most conforms to the nature wherewith God created it. Because God created things for a certain purpose and for immediate ends that all lead and all serve the ultimate end, which is the glory of God. This is natural happiness. It is an objective state. It is not a feeling. So it's not up to us to decide. It's not up to you to decide, am I happy? You just are happy or you aren't. And this is just the way reality is because God created it in a certain way. And He created it all good. And what true happiness is, is revealed in natural law. Again, Job, just like Joseph that we read of last week, Job had no holy scriptures. No scriptures were written yet. He did not have the Ten Commandments. And yet he knew what ought to be done and ought not to be done. And he lived a sanctified life in Christ for the glory of God. Probably the only gospel he had was the, the promise in the garden of the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. That may be all that he knew of Christ as far as by way of special revelation. And yet he knew enough to live as an example of God's grace. It's known by the light of nature what true happiness is. And Job knew it. And when you read in our forefathers, in our Reformed tradition, they speak of the book of Job being a a monument of natural theology. That is, what may, may be known of God by the light of nature, which is the light of reason. We're able to know many truths about God from nature. Not enough to be saved by. We have to hear the gospel in order to be saved. But what we read in, the, in this book, all of these glorious passages describing and speaking of God, some of the richest theology in all of Scripture, this was known by the light of nature before they had the Holy Scriptures. Also, Job's life as one of virtue, exemplary virtue, was according to natural law. What can be known from the light of nature? You can call it moral philosophy. And this is to remind us as God's people that we are accountable for all that is written in Holy Scripture and we're accountable for all God has revealed, not only the book of Scripture, but in the book of nature, which is almost all that Job had to live by. And that's why you'll hear this kind of language in our 
particular Baptist forefathers like Benjamin Keach and reformers like Vermigli and Martin Bucer that even the pagan philosophers like Aristotle could have a concept of what happiness is and that there must be an ultimate good who we know to be God. They could even know this from the light of nature, though they didn't know how to attain it. But yet they agreed with the Apostle Paul in the teaching of Scripture about what true happiness is. It's because God has revealed it in nature and we see this throughout the book of Job. Now this natural happiness that is one kind of human happiness requires two things. It requires virtue and created goods. We think of goods, don't think of like goodies, think of good things. God is the ultimate good. He is the good for which all things should aim. But God has created things which are, we may call, created goods. We have to have virtue and created goods in order to attain natural happiness. And Job, in Job 1, had both of these. You could have created goods, and if you don't have virtue, you are not happy. This is why they tell us that something like 70% of lottery winners are bankrupt within a few years. They win 20, 30 million, 100 million, 150 million dollars in the lottery, and within a few years they don't have a dime left to their name. Why is that? They attained great created goods, but they didn't have the virtue along with it. So they weren't truly happy. Mike Tyson said that the happiest three years of his life were the ones he served in jail. Even after making millions upon millions of dollars boxing, why was it he was happier in jail? Because he had some structure. He had some kind of simulation of virtue. Even if it wasn't true virtue, he was happier in that state than he was with greater freedom and greater created goods. Natural human happiness requires a virtue and created goods. You can have all the virtue in the world, but if you don't have created goods, you will not be able to flourish in human happiness. For instance, a man on a desert island, he's a virtuous man. He, he's there and he has no access to food or water. And he's dying. He cannot flourish as a human being. Yes, he still does have some form of happiness until he dies because he still has his life. But he can't flourish. He needs created goods in order to do that. Job possessed both of these to the max. It tells us he was the greatest in all the East. In verse 8, chapter 1 and verse 8. God says of him there concerning, of his, concerning his virtue. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on earth, blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Job had great virtue, and yet he had great abundance of wealth. One three tells us he was the greatest in all the East for his wealth. As we see here, Job's virtue, you can notice especially in verses 1 and 5. It tells us in verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz. And by the way, this is a pagan land. We don't know exactly which country it was, but we have some ideas of the basic location. But it was a pagan land, and he may have been the only believer in his entire nation. We don't know. 
But it says he was in the land of Uz. His name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. In this, we can see the cardinal or moral virtue of justice that God had worked in Job and that he had practiced and cultivated and that he used to exercise justice over the created goods that he had. Tells us he was blameless and upright. This is his behavior toward his neighbor. And it tells us that he feared God. This is his behavior toward God. This is justice rendering to each one his due. Rendering to his neighbor what's their due. Rendering to God what is due. And we see this perfectly in our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that we may become the very righteousness of God in Him. The very justice or righteousness of God. Christ provided that for us perfectly in His life and death in our place. You can see Job's prudence here in verse 3 as he manages four major corporations. You don't do that without prudence. The ability to look to the past patterns and then present knowledge and forecast and plan for the future and use all the best means to attain the best end. And yet so much more so in our Lord Jesus Christ who is unto us the very wisdom of God. This is simply Christ living through Job. You can see His temperance as in verse 1 it tells us He shunned evil. He shunned evil. He turned away from it. He he says later on in the book in Job 31, he, He tells us, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? Job is exercising temperance and a man of this kind of wealth and influence and power would be greatly tempted to use his wealth and to use his power in a way that's not self-controlled and is not for the glory of God, and yet he exercises self-control over the use of created goods for the glory of God. So much more did our Lord Jesus Christ, as we saw last week, especially in the temptation in the wilderness, who never once allowed his lower appetites to govern him, but he had his lower appetites in perfect subjection to right reason and in perfect harmony and perfect accord. And he lived this life in our place and died for our intemperance, as we've seen. We can see here Job's fortitude as he is willing to persevere through difficulty to attain the good. You don't have ten children without having a dose of fortitude and and raise them well for the glory of God as he did. You don't manage four major corporations without the virtue of fortitude which Job had. And in each one of these virtues, there is excess and defect. In justice, the excess of it is cruelty, being cruel and harsh. The defect of it is being lax and just sitting back and not doing anything about it. But Job had the mean, the the middle and the right way in it, which is justice. In prudence, the excess of it is anxiety, which our Lord Jesus forbids about being anxious over the future and how we will be provided for. That's the excess of prudence. The defect of it is just to be ignorant and not plan for the future and to be 
to be careless. Both of these are vice. Both of these are sin. And yet he lived in the middle of the road, which is prudence. He lived that way by the grace of God. With temperance, the excess of it is to be austere and not to enjoy created goods. Paul talks about false teachers who forbid the eating of meats and they forbid marrying. These are good gifts that God has given us that ought to be enjoyed for the glory of God. And our Lord Jesus Christ was not this kind of man in His temperance. He did not go beyond the virtue of temperance into excess, into the vice of being austere. Our Lord's first miracle was at the wedding of Cain of Galilee in John 2 where He turned water into wine at a wedding party. He enjoyed created goods for the glory of God, but with perfect And righteous self-control. The defect of temperance is intemperance. Lack of self-control. And for a rich man like Job, there would be great temptation of this, which by the grace of God, he was able to overcome. In fortitude, the virtue of fortitude, the excess of it is to be reckless and to not give the caution that is needed. And the defect of it is to be a coward and to sit back and never do anything like the like Proverbs says about the, the fool who says that there's a line in the street so I won't go out today. He always has an excuse not to work. He always has an excuse just to sit back. Part of that is cowardice. And yet, Job, in reflecting the virtue of our Lord Jesus Christ, is able to live in fortitude without the excess of recklessness or the defect of cowardice. And I remind you, dear Christian, this is how God has called you to live in relation to the created goods God has given you, whether it's just a little of created goods in this life or whether it's great and vast wealth like Job had. God has called you to live virtuously by His grace and by the power of His Spirit looking unto Jesus Christ. Job was able to live this way in true and full moral virtue because he was united to God in Christ. He had theological, the theological virtues which we saw. Faith, hope, and love. Faith to believe in Christ and to believe all that God has revealed as we will see later. Hope to desire all that God has promised and love wherewith He loves God and loves his neighbor and he desires to serve God and to serve his neighbor. It tells us that he had faith. He feared God in verse 1. In verse 5, he offered burnt offerings for his children out of fear that they had sinned. And when Job offered these burnt offerings and prayed that God would forgive his children, he does not have faith in those bulls or goats or Sheep that he is sacrificing and burning. He is not trusting in those animals, but rather he is looking ahead to Jesus Christ in these types and shadows that were pictures of Christ. And our particular Baptist forefather, John Gill, put it this way concerning Job's offering up these sacrifices as he would have known this. Remember, Abel at the very beginning offered up the lamb and God received his sacrifice as he looked ahead to Christ. And this was passed down through the generations. And Gill tells us that this custom of offering sacrifice was typical of the sacrifice of Christ. Or it was a type of the sacrifice of Christ. To be offered up in the fullness of time for the expiation of sin. Or the the taking away, the paying for our sins. And Job, no doubt, by faith in Christ, 
offered up these burnt offerings for his sons, thereby signifying that everyone stood in need of the whole sacrifice of Christ for the atonement of sin as every sinner does. He had true faith in Christ. And by the way, we confess this. Scripture teaches it and we confess it. That the justification of believers under the old covenant is in all respects the same as the justification of us believers in the new covenant. He was a man of faith and that's why he was able to live a moral and upright life. It wasn't him pulling himself himself up by the bootstraps. This was Christ in him, the hope of glory, living through him, just like he is through you, dear believer, just like he's called and empowered you to live. He lived in hope, desiring gospel forgiveness for his children. He lived in love as he feared God. And Scripture connects the fear of God with the love of God. It's not a slavish fear that we fear God with, but rather it is a love as a respect, a reverential fear and respect for God, as Deuteronomy 10:12 tells us. And now, Israel, what does God, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him? To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. God had granted Job faith, hope, and love the moment he was regenerated. Faith in Christ. Hope poured into his heart by the Spirit. Love because God first loved us and now he loves God. And therefore he was able to live a life of moral virtue as displayed in the four cardinal virtues that we saw. And this also is your life, dear believer. God blessed him with great created goods. He not only had virtue, but he had created goods. Verses 2 to 3 tells us about his possessions. It tells us about his family, ten children. And remember Psalm 127 tells us that Children are an heritage of the Lord, and blessed is the man who has his quiver full of them, like a a warrior's quiver full of arrows. So are children in the hand of a mighty man. Job was greatly blessed concerning his family. Ten children. He was blessed greatly with business assets. As we read in verse 3, he had four major corporations. He was the owner and operator in the textile industry or clothing, that is, the sheep. The food industry, sheep were also used for food. The transportation industry, that is, camels, they were meant to carry heavy loads through the desert. And the agricultural industry with oxen and donkeys. It'd be like today somebody owning a well-known clothing brand, say, Something like Versace. Then they own also a food corporation. Then they own John Deere tractor equipment and all of their farming equipment. And then they own all of the land to farm and to turn a profit on. And not only this, but Job also, it would be like he owned a, a huge trucking company in our day. Four major corporations... He had the manpower to carry it out. It tells us his household was very great or his servants were very many, very large household. He had his reputation, which which was the gift of God and God's providence. He was considered greatest in all the East. It may be like one of our richest men in the world today. You can think of several names right now of billionaires. 
men worth billions and billions of dollars. This was Job's life. And on top of this, God gave him the health to be able to enjoy it. And if God hadn't given him that created good, he wouldn't even be able to enjoy any of this. Look how blessed he was with created goods. And yet, when God wants to point to a man, point out to Satan, a man to challenge Satan with, that's what God did in the conversation we just read. Satan reports to God, and God asks him what he's been doing. Basically, Satan thumping his chest, saying, I've been going up and down in the earth doing whatever I want to do. God says, uh, there's one thing you haven't done. I dare you. Check out Job, the most virtuous man on earth, basically. It's God that points out Job. It's God that puts the target on him and that allows Satan to unleash on him. And one of the main points of the book of Job is God picking a fight with Satan and, and showing Satan, Job does not serve me for the goodies that I've given him. He serves me because he loves me. Job loves God as an end in himself, not for the created goods that God gives him. This is one of the main points of the book of Job. And in this, it teaches us, now now think of this, Job is the richest and greatest man in all the East, and he's also the most righteous man in the East, and at this time, possibly in the whole world. This teaches us that virtue and created goods are not enemies, but friends. Takes two things for natural human happiness, virtue and created goods. These two are not enemies, but they are friends. They're like fire and gasoline in the wrong place at the wrong time. It'll blow you up and burn you to death. But at the right place in the right time, it'll power your vehicle and in the right proportion. These two, virtue and created goods, only become enemies. By our lack of virtue. Deuteronomy 32.15, God speaking of Israel, calling him Jezron. He says, but Jezron grew fat and kicked. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. God blessed Israel and God is comparing it to a cow. He feeds and becomes fat and then he kicks against God. This is not the fault of the blessings that God blessed him with. It's his own sinful lack of virtue whereby he kicked against God. And this is a sinful tendency. And Scripture warns about it throughout, including in 1 Timothy 6, where it warns about the deceitfulness and dangers of those who will be rich or desire to be rich. He tells us in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The love of money is extremely dangerous. And our Lord Jesus said that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But notice here, Paul is not saying money is the root of all evil. Some people quote it that way. He says it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. The money itself is not the enemy of virtue. It can be used greatly for the glory of God, just like 
Job used his wealth for the glory of God. The problem is when we love the created goods rather than loving God who gave them and enjoying them only for His glory. This teaches us to avoid two dangerous extremes as Christians. One of them is the false gospel being preached today, which is the prosperity gospel. The health and wealth gospel that you'll hear on the popular TV stations and radio channels where they preach the message that if you are a Christian, God will give you created goods. That is not true. God has not promised to increase or sustain your created goods as a Christian. As a matter of fact, our Lord Jesus promised the opposite as He said in Luke 14.33, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be My disciple. If it comes down to the choice to lose everything you have, all created goods you have, including your life, Jesus says, if you'll be My disciple, you've got to leave all created goods behind. Otherwise, you cannot be a Christian. This cuts against the grain of the prosperity gospel and we shun and we reject this false teaching. God has not promised that we'll have great created goods. He may bless us in that way and He may not. And you could be the godliest person on earth and be the poorest and naturally most miserable person on earth as we find Job After this scene, when God has allowed Satan to strip away and take away, and ultimately, Job does not say Satan has taken away. He says, it's the Lord that gave, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord had taken away almost all created goods, and even then, Job's health, and there he sits in the ash pile, mourning and sorrowing, Scraping the sores, he had sores from head to toe. Scraping the sores with a piece of pottery to try to get some relief. There he is, the most miserable man on earth, naturally speaking, but God counts him as the most righteous man on earth. The most godly man. That may be your lot as a believer in God's wise and sovereign Providence. So we reject all forms of prosperity gospel. But on the other hand, we want to avoid the extreme of escapism. Escapism is saying, well, natural goods are not going to last. Created goods are not going to last. It's all going to burn anyway, so why try? Why be diligent at work? Why plan for the future? Why use prudence and justice and temperance and fortitude in, in our dealings our business dealings, and in our finances, and these other things. We'll just kind of check out and cruise through, or like the rapture mania where groups throughout even recent history have sold everything they have and go up on top of a mountain waiting for the Lord to return, waiting for the rapture. That's escapism. Paul rebukes this to the Thessalonians saying some of you are idle and you're not working at all. They're just sitting around waiting on Christ to return. And he rebukes them and he even says that if they continue that way that they're not even true Christians. He says elsewhere that he that won't provide for his own household is worse than an infidel, worse than an unbeliever. God has not called us to escapism, just to check out. Another form of it is monasticism. Become a monk and just go live in a cave somewhere the rest of your life. Just check out of society. Don't be around anybody anymore. 
But rather, God has called us as Christians to live in obedience and in diligence even after the pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ who Mark 6 tells us when they ask about Jesus, isn't this the carpenter's son? Jesus, when He started His public ministry at age 30, had spent His life up until then in the skilled trade of stonemason house building. This was a skilled trade in that time. He had applied his, Himself, His strength, His mind, His energies through the years in this trade. He was no escapist. And He's called us to live this way. To use created goods with virtue. And our Lord Jesus did this perfectly. And He did it in our place. And He died to pay for what Scripture calls our iniquities in Isaiah 53.5, but He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. When you hear iniquity, think inequity. That's what it's talking about. Inequity is injustice. Lack of the cardinal virtue of justice. Christ died for our lack of virtue. Our failure to render unto God His due and render unto neighbor their due. And now, as He has forgiven us all that, He's credited us with all of His righteousness, He calls us to live in virtue for His glory. And by His Spirit, He empowers us to do this. Just as we saw the Apostle Peter as he commanded us in 2 Peter 1.5 that we add to our faith virtue. We are to cultivate this for the glory of God. And to use created goods for God's glory. We read elsewhere where Job, he, he's recounting later on, looking back on his life, his friends are accusing him. They're saying, you must have been living in secret sin and that's why God brought judgment. And he's saying, no, I haven't been living in sin. I don't know why God's brought judgment. And he recounts his life before. And he says that he used to give to the poor and take care of the widow and those that were in need. He gave to them. He gave of His wealth. He used it for the glory of God. He was not a hoarder like Ebenezer Scrooge. Scrooge had great wealth, but he was not happy because he lacked the virtue to use that wealth for the glory of God. But Job did. He used it for God's kingdom. And that's what God has called us to do in Christ. And I encourage you, dear Christian, to be diligent to glorify God. However much God has blessed you with created goods, be diligent to glorify God in your use of created goods, in your business, in your job, in school, in the home. If you're a stay-at-home mom, or maybe if you're in retirement years, or maybe if you're shut in listening by way of Live stream, I encourage you to seek to live in everything and to do all that you do for the glory of God. And to use whatever God has given you, whatever time and whatever abilities and whatever possessions God has given you, use them for His glory and cultivate virtue and seek God to help you to grow in virtue and how you use these things. So that you might say with the Apostle, as He commands us that all things be received with thanksgiving, that everything we do, everything we partake of, that we might give God thanks and do it for the glory of God with a clear conscience according to His Word. Be diligent in this. And we're commanded in Scripture, it's not just that God 
permits us to, to grow in natural happiness. It's that God commands us to do this. In Ephesians 4.28, the apostle talks about the one who used to be a thief, and now he's a Christian, now he's saved. He says, let him that steal, stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who is in need. If you study the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. And you study this passage, you'll realize that, okay, the thief that used to steal, and now he's converted to Christ, he, he stopped stealing, he's repented of that, right? He's repented of being a thief since he stopped stealing. No, he hasn't. Paul is saying here in Ephesians 4.28, he's repented of it when not only he stopped stealing, but he works with his own hands, and he accumulates enough created goods or enough wealth to support himself and to have some to give to others who are in need and support those who can't defend themselves, who can't work for themselves, who can't provide for themselves. This is a command for the pursuit of natural happiness by the grace of God as much as God gives you created goods in this life. If God allows you to have a business, a job, God allows you to make money, and to have these possessions, you're commanded to pursue with virtue, always with virtue, to pursue the multiplication of those possessions for the kingdom of God, not to spend upon your own lust. As the Apostle James tells us, you ask, but you have not, because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your own lusts. That is the desire to accumulate possessions without virtue, but God commands and instructs us to seek as much as God allows and provides for us to gain and to use created goods for the glory of God and the good of neighbor. But in this, we always have to do this. We always have to remember concerning this natural happiness. That we desire a greater happiness that natural happiness can never attain. We can never be satisfied with created goods. But rather, there is a greater happiness that can never be taken from you. Job had almost all his created goods taken from him. And yet there was a happiness. And, and yes, his natural happiness was extremely diminished when that happened. He lost ten children in one day. Can you imagine the bereavement? Can you imagine the grief and sorrow? He lost his business assets. He lost his own health. His natural happiness was extremely diminished. And oh, dear saint of God, this may be God's lot for you. But for all of us, as we come to death, as Pastor Downs has told us time and time again, even your very body will be confiscated from you as you pass through that security gate into the afterlife. All created goods will be left behind one day. And this natural happiness will fade. But there's a second kind of happiness. You remember about the Amazon truck. Warning, contents may cause happiness. True or false? Well, in a way it's true because created goods are necessary for natural happiness. Yes, if you have virtue, 
you're a believer in Christ and you're using those created goods for the glory of God and the good of others, yes, they can contribute to your natural happiness. But as to whether they can give true, lasting happiness, happiness that can't be taken away, it's absolutely false. And there's only one kind of happiness that can be described that way. And it is supernatural happiness. And this corresponds to the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. When you are regenerated, when you have faith in Christ, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, filled with hope, and you begin to truly love God because God loves you and He has shared that love with you in Christ. And now you love God and love others. This supernatural happiness is a foretaste of eternal glory. It begins in this life the moment that you're saved. But it's only consummated. You only enjoy the fulfillment and the fullness of it in future glory, as we'll see next week. Our Lord Jesus speaks of this second kind of happiness, this supernatural happiness in Matthew 5.10, which we read in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now imagine somebody being persecuted to the maximum. Imagine as some of our dear Christian martyrs have died. Imagine that martyr who is on the rack and he is being stretched, literally stretched apart with that vile machine of torture that they use to try to make him recant the name of Christ. And he's in excruciating pain. It could not be said of that martyr at that time that he has fullness of natural happiness. God in His providence has deprived him of most natural happiness. But what can be said of him is what our Lord Jesus says here, blessed, happy in the full and true sense of the word. Blessed is that man who is persecuted. This is a happiness that Satan himself can never take away from you, just as he couldn't take it away from Job. If anybody could have lost their supernatural happiness, if anybody could have lost the faith, hope, and love that God had granted and gifted unto them at the moment of their salvation, if anybody could have lost it, Job would have lost it. But remember, greater is he that's in you than he he that's in the world. He could not lose it, and neither can you, dear believer, In this supernatural happiness, you can see his faith. And we see this in chapter 19 of the book of Job. In these few verses, 23 to 27, you can see Job's faith. Faith is the empty hand. The empty hand that that grasps Christ, that lays hold of Christ. It's like the songwriter said, in my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Faith is the empty hand. You receive Christ not coming to God with anything to offer, but simply receiving Christ as He is offered in the preaching of the Gospel. Notice the nature of Job's faith in chapter 19, in verses 23 to 24. Oh, that my words were written. Now, we've skipped all the way through to the middle of the book of Job. He's lost everything. He's been sitting in the ash pile, scraping his sores, grieving and sorrowing. His three friends have come and 
if you could even call them friends, with friends like this, who needs enemies as they badger him and they hound him? Surely you were living in sin, Job. Surely God's punishing you for your sins. And he's trying to defend himself. And then it comes to this portion. And he says, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. Verse 25. And he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. He's lost almost all created goods. His natural happiness has been extremely diminished on account of this. He still has his virtue, but his goods have been diminished. And yet... He has not lost this supernatural happiness that reaches beyond the present, that reaches out to the future promises of God and lays hold of them. Notice the content of his faith. He is trusting specifically in Christ. In verse 25, I know my Redeemer lives. He has hope in Christ's incarnation. And he could have full well known these truths from the promise that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And knowing that This coming one, the seed of the woman, will reverse the effects of the serpent and the sin done in the temptation of the serpent, which is death that it brought upon the human race and all the penalties of sin. He has faith in Christ's incarnation. He says, I know that He'll stand on the earth at the last day. He has faith and hope in Christ's second coming that at the last day, Christ will stand on the earth and He will right all wrongs. And this is no stretch to think that Job knew about the incarnation and the return of Christ in judgment because Jude tells us in Jude 14 that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, talking about false teachers, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. And then he describes the final judgment. This is no stretch. Job was longing and looking and trusting in Christ as his only hope, even when he had lost almost all earthly goods. This exemplifies and reflects the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Job had faith in the future resurrection that, verse 26, though, the, though my skin is destroyed, yet in the flesh I will see God. He knows He's going to rise again in Christ and He believes this. He has faith in the future joy of the beatific vision, that is the vision of God and glory whereby the saints will be supremely happy. In verses 26 to 27, he says that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. This is faith. He's reflecting the faith of our Lord Jesus, who even... In death, even as he approached death, our Lord Jesus looked beyond the veil of death. He looked beyond the suffering. And he said in Psalm 16, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you'll not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our Lord Jesus in the crucible of His suffering on the cross, believed that God would raise Him from the dead. 
And he had hope in this. And dear Christian, you have this same faith that Job did. And you might think, I don't know if I could make it if I suffered what Job suffered. Yes, you will make it by the grace of God. No matter what providential afflictions God and his love and wisdom brings upon you, you will persevere in faith. Because it's God who has given you this faith and who maintains this faith. You can see his hope in this passage. Hope is the reaching hand. Hope is is you desiring what God has promised. By faith you believe it's true. By, By hope you desire it. Verse 27, he says he yearns for this. And you can tell in verses 25 to 26, he greatly desires this glorious end. We saw this hope of our Lord Jesus approaching death there in the 16th Psalm. Even in death, He is resting in hope of the resurrection. Until that third day when God raised Him from the dead. You can see here Job's love. Love is the working hand. And you can't have faith without hope and love. They're all together. Faith is the empty hand that grasps Christ. Hope is the reaching hand. Love is the working hand. You can see that in chapter 1 and throughout the whole book and this main point of the book where Satan says, does not Job serve you for nothing? He says that to God. He's implying Job doesn't really love you, God. He just loves the goodies you give him. Take away the goodies and Job will curse you to your face. That's the challenge that Satan makes. And God uses Job and his faithfulness as a stick to flog the devil with throughout the whole rest of the book. And it all ends up that Job, by the grace of God, doesn't speak foolishly or charge God foolishly. And he remains faithful to God by the grace of God. This is love. And God has given you this same love, dear believer. And you won't quit either. And I encourage you not to quit. Now this teaches us, dear Christians, that God may take almost all created goods from you, even in this life. He may take family by way of death. He may take even the wealth or the possessions that you have. He may take even your very health as He did with Job. And in this life, we know that natural happiness fades. But this supernatural happiness you can never lose. And I encourage you with this, dear saints. If you could lose it, Job would have lost it. And by the grace of God, he didn't. And you won't either. And I remind you, this supernatural happiness is yours in Christ. Even if now your natural happiness is being diminished, if created goods are being taken away, be encouraged. Your faith, hope, and love is not being taken away. It is being strengthened. And just like John Bunyan in Interpreter's House talked about the scene of the fireplace and there was a man throwing water on the fire but the fire burned all the brighter and he couldn't understand it until he went behind the wall. And behind the wall there was a man, he was squirting oil into the fire and that's why it wouldn't go out. Dear Christian, whatever you're suffering, whatever created goods, God in His providence is taking away from you or has taken away. There is one in you greater than he that is in the world who is putting the oil on the fire of your faith 
and hope and love, and by the grace of God, it'll burn from now on, and it'll never go out because it's God doing this work in you. And I encourage you not to give up. I encourage you, dear believer, as we saw last Lord's Day, that the only way you grow in faith, hope, and love is participation in the means of grace. I encourage you, as we come to the Lord's table in a few moments, as we come together for prayer meeting week after week, and public worship, and the teaching of the Word in Sunday school, and at home, and private prayer, and family Devotions. I encourage you, old oh dear believer, avail yourself of these means of grace. This is what God uses to squirt oil on the fire of the theological virtues that He has granted unto you in Christ. And I remind you in this, that this future hope that Job had, this hope of the return of Christ and the blessed vision of God in eternity, This is your hope. This is your God. This is your Redeemer. So don't lose heart. Dear ones here who are yet in your sins, God invites you to participate in this life, the very life of God in Christ. Come to Christ now and receive this supernatural happiness that you can never lose.